Before the episode starts, just a heads up that there will be two Black Label episodes released to Patreon before the end of the month. So if you've ever considered supporting us, now is a good time to hop on the bandwagon. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. The tropical archipelago of the Bahamas is surrounded by crystal-clear waters, spectacular reefs, and boasts some of the Caribbean's most pristine beaches. Situated in the Atlantic Ocean, north of Cuba, and east of the Florida Keys, the country's 700 islands span an area of 500 miles. The picture-perfect setting is home to a relaxed pace of life, friendly locals, and around 340 days of sunlight per year. Tourism drives the Bahamian economy given it's a popular destination for cruise visitors and employs around half the country's workforce. But life in paradise isn't always footloose and fancy-free. Armed robberies and sexual assaults in the Bahamas aren't uncommon, even in popular tourist areas. By March 2015, there had been 33 murders in the country. That's almost three a week. In today's episode, we'll hear the story of the 34th. Philip Vasili was born on the 29th of August, 1956, in the town of Tweed Heads, on the northern coast of New South Wales, Australia. Not much is publicly known about Philip's immediate family, but during his childhood, the Vasilis relocated a nine-and-a-half-hour drive south to the suburb of Liverpool in southwest Sydney, where Philip grew up. Philip attended Liverpool Boys High School. His upbringing was reported to be tough, and his relationship with his father said to be strained. As a teenager, Philip focused his energy on his interests, including making surfboards and participating in mixed martial arts training. His efforts saw him gain a black belt in karate and become a three-time state champion. After graduating high school, Philip studied podiatry at university, while also working briefly as a bouncer. Podiatry is a field of allied medicine which treats conditions related to feet, ankles, and the lower legs. When he graduated university, Philip went into business with his childhood friend Lawrence. The pair opened their own podiatry practice in 1980, which focused on lower limb biomechanics and orthotics and treating common foot-related ailments like plantar fasciitis or overpronation. At the time, the field of podiatry was relatively new in Australia, but Philip was so driven that he'd already developed his first orthotic device. It was around this time that Philip met 20-year-old dental technician Donna Oliver. Born in July 1960, Donna was vivacious, fun-loving, intelligent, and grew up in the Liverpool area in a family who had a strong Catholic faith. Donna was attracted to Philip's ambition and big personality, and the pair fell quickly in love. 
It wasn't long before the young couple were married and moved into an apartment in Liverpool. Donna described Philip as the love of her life, but things quickly changed, with the relationship said to be tempestuous and volatile at times. For a short time early in their marriage, Philip and Donna separated. Philip was crushed and his work suffered during this time, but their pair reunited after a year apart and went on to welcome two children, Lauren and Aaron. During the 1980s, Philip established three extremely successful podiatry clinics throughout Sydney, and the practices became so successful he eventually sold them. But Philip wanted more. He was an entrepreneur who was hungry for success. Behind him was Donna, encouraging him to pursue his dreams. Philip's lifelong friend and former business partner Lawrence later told the Daily Telegraph, quote, They were teenage sweethearts. Donna was fantastic. She was the rudder to his boat and helped out with a lot of the business things as well as the family. Every time I saw him, it was always about everything in life being rosy. Professionally, Philip reached a stumbling block when it came to the manufacture of orthotic devices for his patients. These externally applied devices such as braces or shoe inserts work with the body's muscular and skeletal systems to correct gait issues, making walking and movement comfortable and pain-free. The traditional orthotics he was using had to be custom manufactured in the U.S. to patients' dimensions, which was both time-consuming and expensive. Philip decided to see if he could save time and money by manufacturing the orthotics himself, drawing on the surfboard-making skills he'd developed as a teenager. Much to his surprise, Philip realized that his orthotics were far more popular with his patients, as opposed to the ones being made in the U.S. This proved there was a gap in the market for pre-made, affordable, high-quality orthotic devices available as a retail product, which were based on sound principles of biomechanics. Philip decided to expand his idea and make his revolutionary product available to consumers in a retail, non-clinical setting. In 1991, this world-first orthotic design was launched as the OrthoHeal. It quickly gained popularity the world over, being sold in over 25 countries. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that Philip's operation grew into the largest custom orthotic manufacturing laboratory in the Southern Hemisphere. His business, Vasily International, went gangbusters. 35-year-old Philip was suddenly a multimillionaire. In the following audio, recorded at a 2013 product launch, Philip described the background to his success and his drive to revolutionize orthotics. My name is Philip Vasily. I'm a podiatrist from Australia. And um, I started practice in 1980 and uh, as a practitioner treating people's feet. And I used to make orthotics, which were custom made, very expensive. And what I did is actually invented a, a, a more novel and inexpensive way of treating people's feet with uh, uh, retail products which you can purchase across the shelf or online or even uh, on the home shopping network and it kind of revolutionized um, the, the technology. There, there, there's still a need for custom made orthotics in my opinion but it, it's my original thoughts 20 years ago I would have said 80% of the people need custom made but they don't. I'd say 20% may be needed, 80% can get away with a very well made pre-made. So when I say well made it needs to be very accurate. I standardized the angles. I didn't really think it would be that Great. I really didn't, but it just proved me wrong. And, and the more we've done this, and I've done this for 33 years, this is not new. And we have studies and papers to back up the science academically. And um, really, we're still coming back to replacing your human footprint, changing the ground to suit your foot. When we made the original products, they were like this, which is a simple flip-flop. And as soon as we went to that, sales just like tripled. 
Philips' engaging and personable nature saw him become the face of videos advertising both his own products and Skoll worldwide, which also sold his devices. Philip knew he could go further with designing and developing innovative products. An article in specialty industry publication Podiatry Today detailed how Philip's passion for his devices and products was driven not by the financial bottom line, but how they address specific issues encountered by patients and consumers. Philip maintained he was a podiatrist, not a salesman, and that his motivation was to make high-quality products available to help people. The company was renamed Vionic Group, and headquarters were established in San Francisco, where Philip regularly used to travel for business. The company grew at such a rate that Philip soon expanded his management team to help with the day-to-day -day running of the business. In 1993, following huge success and Philip's desire to expand his business across the U.S., the Vasilis moved overseas. The 37-year-old's expertise was in demand, and whenever he spoke at conferences, he had a captive audience and was professionally regarded as an inspiration to his colleagues. But despite appearing to be an overnight success, Philip didn't rest on his laurels. Podiatry Today reported that he then went on to establish an advisory board with top experts in biomechanics from the U.S. and around the world. Both his business associates and employees found Philip's positive energy infectious. He became something akin to a celebrity podiatrist. He thrived on the glowing publicity and without relying on cliches, was said to truly be the life of the party. People gravitated towards Philip's natural enthusiasm, authenticity, and refreshingly down-to-earth nature, which was tempered by his humility. Even though he'd achieved massive professional success thanks to his pioneering work, he kept his feet on the ground, so to speak, remaining committed to simply wanting to help people. In 2002, the Vasili family moved from the U.S. to the Bahamas, settling in the exclusive gated community of Old Fort Bay on New Providence Island. They became Bahamian residents, purchasing two apartments, as well as an office for Philip located in a medical center. 45-year-old Philip was exceptionally generous to those around him with his time, counsel, and money. He loved nothing more than sharing his good fortune and jet-setting lifestyle with his family, friends, and professional network whether it be on private jets, chartering luxury yachts, or going for a spin in his Lamborghini. Philip maintained a high level of physical fitness and strength thanks to his ongoing love for martial arts training. Philip loved posting photographs on social media of his travel adventures from around the world, including happy snaps of his family, friends, and business associates. He was proud of his hard work and achievements, but exceptionally grateful for his success. Out of his natural desire to give back, Philip developed an interest in philanthropy and supported a number of charities around the world. He then went a step further and, along with Donna and their children, founded the Vasily Foundation. The not-for-profit charity aimed to improve healthcare outcomes in poor and underprivileged communities worldwide. Donna was the foundation's project manager, described on the charity's website as, quote, always known for her kind soul and bright spirit. Truly a nurturing soul whose motherly instinct and caring values are the root of the family's moral and traditional values. But as hard as Philip worked, he partied harder. No expense was spared on celebrations and nights out, which there were many. Philip regularly drank significant amounts of alcohol and was said to brag about his capacity to consume large quantities of cocaine. In an interview with Channel 9 Australia, Philip's driver claimed that Philip wasn't happy in his marriage to Donna and that cracks were starting to show between the couple. 
In the same expose, friends and former employees of Phillips reported loud arguments and name-calling between the couple, which often became physical. It was said that Donna took to contacting Phillips' friends and business associates to vent about her husband. She divulged that Philip was addicted to drugs and alcohol, having had several stints in rehab. Friends and colleagues also noticed that things were becoming ugly between the couple in public. Philip was regarded as somewhat of a father figure to both employees and younger friends whom he mentored and provided financial backing for their own professional ventures. It was no secret that he enjoyed flirting with women who were drawn to his charismatic personality and natural charm. This understandably didn't sit well with Donna, and the couple were said to often argue about the attention Philip paid to other women. His former driver told Channel 9 Australia that during one confrontation at the couple's home, he saw Donna threaten her husband with a knife. On another occasion, Philip alleged to friends and employees that Donna had stabbed him in the thigh with a butter knife. From the accounts of those close to the couple, there was no question the relationship was toxic. Philip's driver claimed that Philip told him he wanted to divorce Donna, and he didn't care what it cost him to have her out of his life. In October 2012, Philip and Donna traveled by private jet to San Francisco for a week's vacation. This was part of preparations for their daughter Lauren's upcoming wedding celebrations in Australia in November, followed by another in Majorca, Spain. The family, including Lauren's fiancé Quinton, stayed at the five-star Four Seasons Hotel. During their stay, the family met 29-year-old hotel maitre d' Sunny Heng, and Philip struck up conversations with the young woman throughout the course of the week. Towards the end of the Vasilis stay, Philip asked Sonny for her email address so he could send her some information on his footwear products. It wasn't long before Philip and Sonny began emailing frequently, establishing a close friendship. When Philip eventually asked Sonny when he could come and see her, she knew it wasn't just platonic. Sonny later told Channel 9 Australia that during this time, Philip confided in her that his marriage to Donna was not a happy one. When Philip flew to San Francisco to see Sonny after Lauren's wedding, the pair began a sexual and romantic relationship. Philip made Sonny feel special. His caring nature and authenticity soon saw her falling in love with the 56-year-old, and she believed he loved her. It wasn't until six months after Lauren's wedding that Donna discovered that her husband was having an affair with Sonny. She was said to be understandably livid and started calling Sonny. Philip had told Sonny not to answer any of Donna's calls, so Sonny let them go through to voicemail. The messages that Donna left at times sounded somewhat overfamiliar and insincere. During her interview with Channel 9 Australia in 2019, Sonny shared the voicemail messages Donna left on her phone. Oh, hi, Sonny. It's Donna again. Yeah, we need to talk pretty quick. Anyway, give me a call. It was so lovely meeting you at the Four Seasons. I'm so glad you came into my life and my husband's life. It's very nice of you. You're such a lovely girl. Oh, hi, Sonny. Can you give Donna a call back? You haven't returned any of my calls. I'm just wondering if there's a problem. Anyway, love you, Angel. Talk to you soon. Bye, Cupcake. By this stage, Philip had purchased Sonny expensive Cartier jewelry. When Donna discovered that her husband had spent thousands of dollars on a designer ring, watch, bracelet, and necklace for another woman, she was furious. She left Sonny a voicemail telling her the police were coming to arrest her for stealing the jewelry. Donna's voicemails to Sonny became increasingly threatening in tone, eventually escalating into abusive messages that included racial slurs in reference to Sonny's Chinese heritage. On occasion, Donna sounded as though she were under the influence of alcohol, 
and even left false names in her messages, pretending to be somebody else. Oh, hi, Sonny. It's Donna Vasily, Philip's wife. I can't believe you can't call me back. Anyway, just keep your big bow legs closed and stop trying to milk my husband for money because you're a slut. House wrecker, family wrecker, only into my husband for his money. Leave husbands alone. Do you get it? You're nothing but a slant-eyed bitch. So fuck off and go find some other gullible cunt. You got that? Oh, hi, Sonny. It's Donna Vasily calling. Remember me from the Bahamas and my husband, Philip? I just wanted to know if you're fucking my husband, so I've got the big fucking boys on to you. You're dead. And you ain't getting sweet shitty boomba. Yeah. You can get fucked, you little fucking Chinese fucking cunt. It didn't seem to matter how often Philip changed his passwords on his phone, laptop, and email accounts. Donna continued to access the communications between her husband and Sonny, becoming more and more infuriated about her husband's ongoing infidelity and Sonny's presence in Philip's life. Philip's former driver told Channel 9 Australia that Philip became so concerned that Donna would try to physically harm Sonny that Philip asked him to act as Sonny's bodyguard. All the while, Donna's harassment of Sonny continued. Sonny told Channel 9 Australia that Donna called the Four Seasons Hotel where Sonny worked. She claimed that Donna told the general manager that Sonny was engaging in sex work at the hotel with male guests who were married. Soon afterwards, Sonny was fired. But she kept receiving voicemails from Donna, who taunted the younger woman and made sure Sonny knew that Donna knew where she lived. Oh, hi, Sonny. It's Donna. Stop trying to milk my husband for money because I hear that's what you do. And that's why you've been sacked from the Four Seasons because you're a slut. You are Chinese trailer trash. Put your legs together, close your bank account, and get a job. After Sonny was fired, she realized she was being followed. Donna had hired private investigators to track Sonny and Philip's every move, photographing them whenever they were together. Philip called Sonny following one particularly nasty confrontation with Donna, leaving a message saying, quote, I just had a big argument with Donna and you came up, and she said she loves you for the money. Maybe money and me go nice together. I don't fucking care. But I thought you loved me, and you do, so it just makes me feel better in my heart. Despite the tension that Philip and Sonny's relationship was causing in the marriage, the affair became more serious. In mid-2013, the pair got a rental apartment in San Francisco, and Philip was said to be taking steps to divorce Donna. Things came to a climactic head between husband and wife in early November 2013 at their home in Boca Raton, Florida. One night, the couple had yet another argument about Sonny in front of their son, Aaron, which quickly escalated. Donna threw a glass of water at her husband, who hit back literally, leaving Donna bloodied and bruised. Donna called the police, and Philip was charged with domestic battery. Philip was now in a bind. He was unable to leave Florida to conduct business, unless Donna decided to drop the charges. Philip's colleagues at Vionic had grave concerns. If Donna didn't drop the charges, this presented problems for everything Philip had worked so hard to build, including the livelihoods of his employees. Over the course of several discussions, Donna eventually told Philip she'd drop the charges if he complied with certain conditions. Firstly, Donna wanted her husband to enter a drug and alcohol rehab program. She also wanted Sonny out of the San Francisco apartment and for her to have no further contact with Philip. Sonny didn't want to see her lover lose everything he'd worked so hard for, so she complied with Donna's demands. In January 2014, 57-year-old Philip entered rehab at the exclusive Passages Addiction Treatment Center in Malibu, California. Over the course of intensive therapy sessions during his stay, Philip decided he wanted to end his marriage once and for all. 
but Donna was not on board and was initially said to steadfastly refuse to accept her husband's decision. Nevertheless, divorce proceedings commenced, and both Philip and Donna's lawyers became involved in lengthy negotiations. 53-year-old Donna eventually agreed to a divorce on the condition that, among others, Philip got a vasectomy to prevent him having children with any future partners. As far as Donna was concerned, 30-year-old Sonny was no longer on the scene. Donna didn't bank on her husband meeting someone else anytime soon, but during Philip's time in rehab, he met a woman named Lisa, who was also seeking treatment for addiction. The pair clicked, and it was only a matter of time before the pair commenced a relationship upon both finishing the program, eventually moving in together in Malibu. Lisa knew that Philip and Sonny stayed in contact on a platonic basis. When Donna discovered that her husband had taken up with Lisa, she stopped calling Sonny. Instead, she was said to have started making harassing and abusive phone calls to Lisa, reportedly also sending her text messages and emails. Lisa told Channel 9 Australia that she believed that, like Sonny, Donna had her trailed by a private investigator. Eventually, Philip moved out of the Malibu apartment and the relationship with Lisa ended. Sonny had always hoped deep down that she could rekindle her relationship with Philip, and unbeknownst to Donna, the pair began seeing each other again, meeting up in San Francisco. Philip and Sonny agreed to have no contact whenever he returned to the Bahamas to avoid raising Donna's suspicions. Despite the ups and downs of Philip and Donna's turbulent marriage, by early 2015, construction of their dream home in Old Fort Bay was well underway. A spectacular tree-lined driveway led to the front of the house. The patio and pool area at the rear of the expansive property opened up onto sweeping views of the beach and spectacular sunsets. The multi-level mansion came complete with a guest house and four CCTV security cameras to monitor comings and goings around the property. By this stage, the couple had employed a maid named Nicolaza since 2001 and a handyman named Alejandro, who also tended to gardening around the property. Alejandro initially worked for the Vasilis in 2003. After leaving the Bahamas for a few years, he returned and started working for them again in 2009. The Vasilis decided to give a nod to their Australian roots by naming their slice of paradise Tumbi Umbi, an Australian Aboriginal word said to translate to a place of much water. Their daughter Lauren, her husband and their new baby lived a five-minute drive away, so having family so close by was an added bonus. Philip continued to travel throughout the U.S. for work, including Chicago, where he spoke at the Foot and Ankle Business Innovations event in January 2015. He was more focused on the business than ever, by this time said to be estimated to be worth around $600 million AUD. In early March 2015, Philip returned to the Bahamas from the U.S. Sonny stuck to their agreement to have little to no contact. But by late March, she had a bigger reason to get in touch. Sonny discovered she was pregnant. Taking a risk, she left numerous voicemails for Philip to call her. It's not known whether he received the messages, but Sonny didn't hear from Philip again. On the evening of the 20th of March, Philip posted a photo to social media of a striking sunset over the Caribbean, taken from the rear of Tumbi Umbi, the caption reading, quote, Thank God it's Friday. On the morning of the 23rd of March 2015, Nicolaza arrived at Tumbi Umbi around 9 a.m. to commence work. Philip and Donna were both home. The couple were expecting a small group of friends and family over later that afternoon for informal drinks on the patio to celebrate the house being finished. 
Nicolaza prepared Philip's breakfast and took it upstairs. Sometime later, he came downstairs and pottered about for the next several hours, all the while consuming enough alcohol to become intoxicated. Philip was wearing only knee-length navy swimming shorts. Donna told him to change, so he was dressed appropriately when their guests arrived, later telling police, quote, he looked disgusting with his pants hanging down. In response, Philip poured himself another drink. Around 3.50 p.m., Nicolaza was in the laundry room when she heard a crash. Philip had become so unsteady on his feet thanks to the alcohol that he'd fallen down the stairs, bumping against some framed pictures on the wall which fell to the ground and smashed beneath him. When Nicolaza found Philip, he was lying on the ground near a broken picture frame. Nicolaza noticed Philip's back was bleeding as a result of falling on the shattered glass and sustaining numerous small cuts. He reassured her he was all right before a panicked Donna ran in, asking what happened. Nicolaza cleaned up the broken glass and tended to Philip's cuts upstairs. By the time she came downstairs, Miles and Jody Pritchard had arrived just after 3 p.m. The couple were longtime friends of the Vasilis. Miles, an international financial advisor, had known Philip for 22 years. Donna told the couple that her husband had been drinking for three days and that his fall down the stairs earlier that afternoon was due to him being drunk. At 3.15 p.m., Donna's nephew Mitchell arrived. He'd been visiting from Australia and was staying with Lauren, but came to see Tumbi Umbi before flying home the next day. The Bahamas Tribune reported that Mitchell later observed that in terms of Donna's demeanor, quote, it was just like any other day. She was welcoming and eager to show her guests her new home. Before Nicolaza finished work and left at 4 p.m., she hid Philip's liquor in the dryer to prevent him from consuming more. Nicolaza and Alejandro were aware that their boss liked to drink, but during their time working for the Vasilis, they didn't observe Philip ever abusing Donna or becoming violent towards her. Both Mitchell and Miles noticed that Philip's speech and movements indicated he appeared to still be intoxicated. Philip was clad only in his swimming shorts when he initially greeted his guests, but at some stage pulled on a white t-shirt. Before he did so, Miles noticed superficial cuts on his friend's back, observing that Philip had a bloody paper towel rolled up. Philip was complaining of lightheadedness and said he wanted to go upstairs to sleep, but Donna was unhappy about this. They were hosting guests, after all. Eventually, she told Philip he should lay down on the bedroom floor on a towel given his back was bleeding. Philip replied that sounded too uncomfortable, so Donna told Nicolaza to lay towels on the spare bed, and Philip went to lay down. Miles later told police that while Philip was gone, the conversation amongst the group turned to the serious matter of Philip's drinking and drug consumption. Quote, I encouraged Donna to treat Phil with tough love. Donna said she wanted to leave for a while. There was talk of Donna perhaps flying back to Australia with Mitchell for a break, even going so far as to decide what clothes she would pack. After Philip awoke from his nap sometime later, he joined the group outside on the patio. He took a seat on the long side of the table to the right of Donna, who sat at the end. Philip wasn't confident that the effects of the alcohol had worn off, so Donna encouraged him to drink water. While Donna took Jody on a tour of the house, Miles and Mitchell chatted for around 20 minutes. When the women returned, Donna offered for the Pritchards to stay at Tumbiumbi, but they politely declined. After further drinks and conversation, Miles and Jody left between 6, 6.30 p.m. Fifteen minutes later, Mitchell also left to have dinner at Lauren's house and finish packing in preparation for his flight the next day. The last time Mitchell saw Philip and Donna together, they were alone at the guest house. 
It was still light outside. At 7 a.m. the next day, the 24th of March, Alejandro arrived at Tumbi Umbi to commence work. He walked to the rear of the property to gain access from the guest house. As he approached the patio, Alejandro noticed a blood-stained kitchen knife on the ground, along with what looked like blood spray. He picked up the knife and placed it on the patio table. He walked around to a bedroom window at the side of the guest house, but couldn't see anyone inside. Nor was there any sign of life when he walked back to the kitchen door. When Alejandro peeked into the kitchen through the blinds, he saw Philip lying on the floor. Alarmed, he tried to open the kitchen door, but it was locked. Using his emergency keys, Alejandro opened the door leading from the patio to the kitchen. He found Philip lying face down in a pool of blood. His clothes were soaked in blood, with his head turned to the right. Alejandro touched his boss to see if he was breathing, but he was cold. Philip had met a brutal end. The house was eerily silent, and Alejandro couldn't see any sign of Donna. He tried using the phone in the guest house to call for help, but it wasn't working. Alejandro decided to drive to Lauren's house nearby to raise the alarm. When he arrived, partially covered in Philip's blood, he found Donna had stayed the night at Lauren's. A shaken Alejandro burst out that Philip was dead. Donna hugged Alejandro to comfort him, gently telling him to calm down. According to the Bahamas Tribune, it was decided that Lauren would stay at her house with her baby. Alejandro, Donna, and Lauren's husband, Quentin, drove over to Old Fort Bay Security to report what Alejandro had found before heading to Tumbi Umbi to await the arrival of police. Alejandro later told investigators that he was unaware of the nature of the conversation between Quentin and security officers. Alejandro and Donna both stayed in the vehicle. When police arrived at Tumbi Umbi, they found Donna in the guesthouse master bedroom. She was wearing a blue nightdress and was wrapped in a sheet. Clearly in shock, she was crying and shaking. Donna was said to have told one officer that she and Philip had argued the previous night. By that stage, Lauren had arrived and entered the bedroom. After whispering something into Donna's ear, Donna refused to say any more. The officer cautioned Donna by police and arrested her on suspicion of murdering her husband. Crime scene investigators noted that the ceiling of the awning above the patio had traces of blood spatter, as if a blood-stained object had been flicked upwards. Blood had pooled on the cushion of the outdoor chair that Philip had been sitting on. Blood spatter was also found on the glass door from the patio to the kitchen. Bloody footprints were found on the ground leading from the patio to the kitchen door and on the doormat outside. A black-handled kitchen knife was sitting on the patio table, along with several dirty wine glasses. Empty beer bottles were found in the garbage. Inside the kitchen, there were more bloody footprints. In a macabre snapshot of domestic life, on the counter sat a plate with an uneaten slice of bread with peanut butter, as well as two bloodied cigarette packets. Bloodied hand and arm prints were located on various surfaces of the kitchen. The bloody knife was one of a set from a block on the kitchen counter. According to the Bahamas Tribune, investigators photographed both the interior and exterior of Tumbi Umbi. On a bedside table, they found a green bag containing what they believed to be several small bags of marijuana. Cigarettes, cigars, marijuana grinders, and a pipe for smoking crack cocaine were also found in the search. In the living room, three hairs were attached to an ashtray. Blood trails led to a bedroom and bathroom on the lower floor of the guest house, as well as the staircase. Upstairs, hair and blood were found in another bathroom sink, 
along with hair on the shower floor. In the master suite, blood was found on pillowcases, a towel, bath mat, sheets, and medical gauze. Inside the master closet, officers found men's size 11 shoes and women's shoes in size 10 and a half. Officers collected clothing from Donna for forensic testing, including the blue nightdress she was wearing, which appeared to have blood stains, a white bathrobe monogrammed with her initials, and a brown bra. There were no signs of a burglary or disturbance, and nothing was missing. Donna, Alejandro, Nicolaza, Lauren, and Quentin were taken in for questioning. Nicolaza told police, quote, I've never seen any violence in the house. The only small arguments I would hear is when Donna would tell Philip to stop drinking because it was bad for his health. Otherwise, to me, their relationship was good. The Bahamas Tribune reported that in his statement, Miles told police, quote, In the past six to nine years, Phil developed an alcohol abuse problem, and it caused problems in his marriage, adding that he and Philip's family previously successfully intervened, convincing Philip to attend rehab. But the benefits were always short-lived. Quote, Phil completed rehab, but he always relapsed. He then started using prescription drugs and cocaine. Our business relationship became strained, but we continued to do business and remained friends. On the 22nd of March, Donna sent a text inviting us to see their newly constructed home. Of the mood at the house that day, Miles stated, quote, Donna was fine. She didn't look angry, and it appeared as though it was a normal drink day for Phil. However, he added, I'd known that during this relationship, Phil and Donna had separated numerous times but ended up back together again. He also mentioned that Donna had previously told him that she'd called police on Philip in the past. Miles was understood to have consumed beer during his visit to Tumbi Umbi. Mitchell told investigators that he didn't see Philip and Donna have any arguments on the 24th of March about Philip's behavior. The Bahamas Tribune reported that Mitchell told investigators that after he left Tumbi Umbi, he returned to Lauren's house where he had dinner. He then went to Lauren's guest house where he was staying and went upstairs to pack. When he returned downstairs around 9 or 9.10 p.m., he saw Donna, but he didn't know what time she'd arrived or how long she'd been there. Detectives put it to Donna that after fighting with Philip, she killed him and fled to Lauren's house immediately afterwards. Donna strongly denied this, saying she was innocent, now claiming it wasn't a fight, more just an argument. When police put it to Donna that she was upset with her husband because he'd embarrassed her in front of their guests, she downplayed the suggestion. Donna explained that Philip had an alcohol and drug addiction, was temperamental, and had regularly verbally and physically abused her. The most recent instance was alleged to have been only a month prior to his death. Donna mentioned that the CCTV cameras at Tumbi Umbi may not be of much use, given they weren't working. Donna told police that she and Philip chatted briefly after their guests left, the last time she saw her husband alive was when she left Tumbi Umbi between 7, 7.30 p.m. just before sunset to make the 12-minute walk to Lauren's house. Donna said that when she left, she was wearing the blue nightdress and white bathrobe, which she also happened to be wearing when police greeted her the following day. The last Donna knew, Philip was alone in the guest house. Donna stated she stayed the night in Lauren's guest house, but didn't actually see her daughter that evening. While Donna was talking with police, Injuries to her hands were observed. She claimed these were the side effects of a laser skin treatment she'd recently had to treat areas of pigmentation. When investigators attempted to confirm certain details in a second interview with Donna later that week, she said she had no recollection of telling police that she'd had an argument with Philip. She also claimed she couldn't recall telling officers that the CCTV cameras at Tumbi Umbi weren't working. 
Donna now told police that when she arrived at Lauren's house, she was wearing a pink and white outfit and a white t-shirt, telling police the clothing was either in the room at Lauren's guest house or on a shelf in the room. But at no stage was Donna asked about any of the clothing police had seized. At the autopsy, bruising was evident on Philip's buttocks and thighs. There were no defensive injuries, indicating he either didn't or was unable to attempt to fight off his attacker. His hands were covered in dried blood. The examination revealed that Philip had been taken completely by surprise. His attacker had snuck up behind him while he was seated at the patio table and plunged the knife into his neck from an angle, just above his left collarbone. The stab wound was 14 cm deep, cutting into Philip's subclavian artery. Upon being stabbed, Philip managed to yank the knife out, which accounted for the blood spatter which had been flicked upwards onto the ceiling of the patio awning. He dropped the knife and placed both his hands over the wound to stem the blood flow. He then staggered from the patio into the kitchen, clutching onto various surfaces to keep himself upright and leaving his bloodied prints in the process. He eventually collapsed on the floor, the single stab wound causing him to bleed out. Philip's body had still been in a state of rigor mortis at around 1 p.m. the day following his murder. Given that rigor was still present at 1.15 p.m. when his body was moved at the crime scene to be photographed, the pathologist felt she couldn't establish the exact time of death. Local detectives knew that home invasions in the gated community area were a rarity, if at all. The locks at Tumbi Umbi were all functional, and as reported by The Guardian, none of the doors at the brand new house had been tampered with or damaged. The chance it could have been an intruder wasn't necessarily impossible, but it was improbable. As word spread throughout Old Fort Bay of the brutal stabbing at the newly finished mansion, neighbors of the Vasilis were in shock. The Daily Telegraph reported that no one living in the vicinity of Tumbi Umbi had heard anything indicating an attack was taking place. Nor were they even aware that the Vasilis' marriage was said to have deteriorated behind closed doors. In the days following the murder, the Vionic Group issued a statement mourning the loss of its charismatic founder, quote, Vionic Group is deeply saddened to announce the sudden passing of Philip Vasily. Since founding his podiatry practice nearly 30 years ago, Vasily treated thousands of patients, ranging from young children to amateur and professional athletes. Known by friends and colleagues as a born healer, he had a genuine passion for making orthotic treatment more affordable and accessible to people in need of pain relief. Vasily embodied the professional ideal, dedicating himself not only to his patients, but to the advancement of the field of podiatry. A mentor to many and an esteemed colleague to all, Philip's passing represents an incredible loss. All of us at Vionic Group and Vasily Medical are proud to have been associated with him and are honored to continue his professional legacy. Our thoughts are with his family, friends, and community. No information appears to be publicly available as to the details of Philip's funeral. Meanwhile, investigators continued processing evidence found both at the crime scene and Lauren's house. The shoe size of the bloody footprints on the ground and the external doormat were between a size 10 and a half and 11. On the floor of the walk-in closet in Lauren's guest house where Donna had stayed the night, police found a brown bra and a multicolored dress. These were identified as belonging to Donna. When police tried to recover CCTV footage from Tumbi Umbi, they found that contrary to what Donna had claimed, the cameras actually were in fact working, and at 7.40 p.m., all four cameras were manually switched off. The footage that was available up until that time from various locations around the property 
captured a number of people leaving Tumbi Umbi via the driveway. One outside camera captured two people arriving at 6.27 p.m. and entering the home. At 6.39 p.m., two people left the home. At 6.43 p.m., two people again entered. At 6.58 p.m., a male left the property. The other notable fact was that whoever had switched off the CCTV knew where the control box was located. It wasn't just inside the front door or anywhere a visitor could access it. It was located next to Philip's office, on the third floor of the home, and certainly not in the vicinity of the guest house. Whoever had turned off the cameras was familiar with the layout of the brand new property. Donna was taken into custody. The Bahamas Tribune reported that before her arraignment proceedings commenced on the 30th of March, Donna turned to her supporters saying, quote, I'll be out. In court, she was formally charged with murder, but the nature of the offense meant she wasn't required to enter a plea at that stage. Her bail application was rejected due to her being considered a flight risk. Donna applied for bail again, which was denied a second time. She appealed the decision, but the order was stayed and Donna remained on remand. The defense appealed the stay, applying for Donna to be released on bail given her high blood pressure and hypothyroidism. When Donna next appeared in court, she pleaded not guilty to murdering her husband. In July 2015, numerous samples of forensic evidence were taken to Florida for testing. These included samples of Philip's fingernail clippings, blood samples taken from Philip, Donna, Alejandro, Mitchell, and Lauren, swabs from the knife blade and handle, handprint swabs, the external kitchen door handles, a cigarette butt found on the patio table, cigarettes from the kitchen counter, a footprint, cuttings from Donna's blue nightdress, and the wine glasses. The multicolored dress was also taken for testing the following month. Curiously, Miles did not provide a DNA sample. When the results came back, they revealed that traces of Philip's DNA had been found on one wine glass and traces of Donna's on another. But on a third glass, which was blue, was the DNA of an unknown male. Philip's DNA was found on the cigarette butts, as well as on the internal handle of the locked kitchen door leading from the patio area. Swabs of the handprint on the kitchen wall included Philip's DNA, as well as that of an unknown male. Traces of Philip's blood were found on the groin area of the blue nightdress Donna had been wearing when police arrived. The dead man's blood was also found on the front of the right-capped sleeve of Donna's multicolored dress, found on the floor of the walk-in closet at Lauren's guest house where Donna had stayed. According to the Daily Telegraph, there was no further evidence in relation to the nature of Philip's bloodstains that had been found on his wife's clothing. This meant there was no information as to whether the blood was visible, whether it was dry or wet, or the method of transfer. There was no forensic evidence linking Donna to the knife, and the only major DNA profile linking her to anything on the patio was her DNA on a wine glass. But this didn't exclude her as a suspect, as her DNA wouldn't necessarily have been present if she'd stabbed Philip and didn't cut herself in the process. By August 2015, Donna's bail appeal was upheld. She was released on $200,000 U.S. bail to go and stay with Lauren until the trial commenced, but she had to wear an ankle monitor. Her bail conditions also stipulated that Donna was not permitted to leave the Bahamas and was required to report to police three times a week. Donna had the full support of both her children, who believed she was innocent. You'll recall that earlier in our story, Philip's lover Sonny Hang was trying to contact him just before he died to tell him she was pregnant. It's not known whether Donna ever knew Sonny was pregnant, 
or even that she and Philip had indeed rekindled their relationship only months before he died. But Sonny later lost her baby. On the 7th of September 2015, Donna's trial got underway. Her family and supporters were in attendance. The prosecution told the court that Donna had stabbed her husband to death on the 23rd of March after their family and friends had left Tumbi Umbi for the evening. They claimed she was angry about Philip's obnoxious and drunken behavior, with Donna essentially provoked into killing him after they had an argument which escalated. The prosecution alleged that after Philip went outside, Donna followed him, stabbing him in the neck from behind after he'd sat down. They claimed there was a lack of evidence indicating that an intruder had killed Philip, leading to the conclusion that he was killed by his wife instead. The prosecution further argued that Donna, when Donna killed Philip, she was wearing her multicolored dress. She then wore the dress to Lawrence, discarding it on the floor of the walk-in closet in the bedroom at her daughter's guesthouse. The prosecution played the jury the video of Donna's initial police interview. They alleged that Donna had lied to police about exactly what clothing she was wearing on the day her husband was murdered. The previous voicemail messages Donna had left on Sonny's phone were not permitted to be entered into evidence at the trial, but it's not clear why. The prosecution asserted that the male DNA on the blue glass, which was originally attributed to an unknown male referred to in court as Blue Glass Man, actually belonged to Miles Pritchard. There was nothing to suggest that Miles had poured his beer into a glass and consumed it that way, but he hadn't explicitly stated that he'd drunk beer from bottles only during the visit. This left the possibility that he may have been Blue Glass Man, but the prosecution was unable to prove this, given Miles hadn't provided a sample of his DNA to investigators. The prosecution didn't explain to the court why police failed to obtain this sample. CCTV footage from Tumbi Umbi on the afternoon and evening in question was played to the jury. The prosecution stated that Donna could be identified by her clothing in the video footage. The prosecution argued that one person in the footage was wearing the same multicolored dress that was later found on the floor of the closet in Lauren's guest house. They also pointed to the fact that no one in the footage could be seen wearing a pink and white outfit at any stage. This was notable, given that Donna had told police during her second interview that she was wearing a pink and white outfit. In terms of the theory that Philip had been murdered by an intruder, the prosecution was on the front foot. If someone had accessed Tumbi Umbi from the beach, sand would have been tracked up the steps and onto the paved pool area and patio. But no evidence of this was found at the crime scene. Another issue with the intruder theory was that if someone had snuck onto the property with the intention of killing Philip, why didn't they bring their own murder weapon? It would have been a risky decision to arrive at Tumbi Umbi, relying on finding something at the scene to use as a murder weapon. This theory also raised the issue of logistics. If an intruder stole into the house from the beach, it would have been near impossible for them to sneak their way into the kitchen to retrieve the knife. At the time, Philip would most certainly have spotted them given he was sitting on the patio. Another fact which didn't fit with the intruder theory was that when Alejandro arrived at work on the 24th of March, he found the guest house kitchen door locked. The mechanics of the door meant that the only way it could be locked was with a key from the outside. If an intruder had murdered Philip and locked the door behind them as they left, how did they manage to obtain a key? The prosecution rested, but there were still unanswered questions, such as whose bloody footprints were left on the patio and outside doormat. Unfortunately, the major weakness in the prosecution case was that it was entirely circumstantial, and there were no eyewitnesses. 
and as we know, the CCTV cameras were switched off by an unknown person at 7.40 p.m., which was after Donna claimed she left Tumby Umby to walk to Lauren's house. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. The defense argued that it couldn't be conclusively proven that Donna was at Tumby Umby when Philip was murdered. This again raised the theory that he had been killed by an intruder who had ridden in on a jet ski, taking advantage of the high tide at that time of night. While cross-examining a police witness, the defense had already established that the rear of the mansion was accessible to anyone who wanted to make their way in via the private beach. The defense also proposed the theory that Philip had taken his own life. However, the evidence supporting this claim was weak. The angle and force with which the knife had penetrated Philip's neck would have been an incredibly awkward wound for him to inflict on himself. Put bluntly, there would have been far easier methods for him to have taken his life had he wanted to. Donna didn't take the stand in her own defense. Her legal team told the court that she was a survivor of domestic violence at the hands of Philip, complicated by his drug and alcohol abuse. The defense explained that Donna had stayed with her husband throughout the marriage due to experiencing battered woman syndrome. The term refers to the learned helplessness that women in abusive intimate partner relationships experience, effectively leading them to believe they deserve what is happening to them. The defense called Donna's dermatologist to the witness stand. She testified that in the days leading up to Philip's death, she had performed a laser treatment on Donna's hands. When it came to identifying Donna in the CCTV footage, the defense argued that as far as the identities of the people in the footage were concerned, the footage itself wasn't of sufficient quality to determine whether these people were in fact the Pritchards, the Vasilis, Mitchell, or anyone else for that matter. 
It would be up to the jury to decide whether Donna was the person seen wearing what the prosecution alleged was the same multicolored dress later found at Lawrence. After hearing three weeks of evidence, the jury retired to consider their verdict. After only four hours of deliberations, on the 1st of October 2015, Donna was found guilty of murdering Philip. Donna's demeanor throughout the trial had been calm and composed up until this stage, but the announcement prompted tears of shock from her supporters, some of whom yelled out, quote, she's innocent. Almost six weeks later at sentencing, the prosecution requested a 30 to 60 year sentence. However, the judge found this excessive. On the 11th of November, in handing down Donna's sentence, he told the court that he was of the view that there was little to no issue of provocation arising from the evidence. Quote, The circumstances of the offense cannot be put higher than a domestic dispute gone horribly wrong. This factor leads to the conclusion that Mrs. Vasily is not a menace to society. I'm fortified in this view by the fact that her record to date has been clean. Taking into account all the circumstances, I hereby sentence Mrs. Vasily to a term of imprisonment of 20 years. Donna had begun the process to appeal her conviction the day before she was sentenced. In May 2016, she filed an amended appeal on several grounds, including an appeal of her 20-year sentence. By the time the 55-year-old's appeal was heard in June 2016, it was evident that she had lost a significant amount of weight in the six months since she'd been imprisoned, appearing frail. Donna claimed that the trial judge failed to give the jury a direction with respect to her good character in the context of considering whether she would have killed her husband. The appeal claimed that the evidence against Donna wasn't sufficient to establish that she had a case to answer. It also stated that the trial judge failed to accurately summarize the defense case and evidence prior to the jury retiring to deliberate. The defense raised additional concerns that the trial judge had erred in misdirecting the jury on points of law regarding circumstantial evidence, stating that the judge failed to provide specific directions to the jury not to speculate on unexplained facts or unproven details. The appeal claimed that the judge failed to exclude prejudicial evidence presented by the prosecution. The defense suggested that the presence of Philip's blood on Donna's blue nightdress could be explained as being transferred from Alejandro's clothing when Donna hugged him to comfort him. It was possible that Philip's blood was transferred to Alejandro's clothing when he picked up the bloody knife earlier that morning. When it came to the traces of Philip's blood on Donna's multicolored dress, the defense claimed Donna's dress was stained when Philip fell down the stairs on the 23rd of March and injured himself. Finally, Donna's appeal claimed that while the judge directed the jury that they had to be sure that Donna didn't act in reasonable self-defense or under provocation, he failed to instruct them that they were open to consider the alternative offense of manslaughter. The Court of Appeal noted that the prosecution's reliance on Donna's lies about what she was wearing, the CCTV cameras as proof of guilt, and the failure of the judge to direct the jury on the significance of lies, meant the jury was possibly left with the impression that Donna intentionally lied to conceal the murder. In terms of the blood on Donna's clothing, the trial judge had also incorrectly determined unexplained aspects as questions of fact, instead of considering them as competing theories which challenged the prosecution case. The appeal court determined that it wasn't possible to conclude that Donna was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt given the absence of evidence as to the characteristics of the bloodstains on her clothing. 
The panel found that the judge failed to direct the jury to consider the issue of provocation, which deprived Donna of an opportunity to be found not guilty of murder, but guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. The court also noted a significant weakness in the prosecution's case against Donna. Investigators' failure to obtain a sample of Miles's DNA for comparison purposes undermined the prosecution's theory that Donna murdered her husband when they were alone at Tumby Umby later that evening. This led to the trial judge incorrectly considering unexplained details about Blue Glass Man as fact, when in actuality, there remained unanswered questions. Two of the three appeal judges felt a retrial was in order in the interest of justice. The other did not, given the weak and inconclusive nature of the circumstantial evidence. But in early August 2017, the panel concurred that Donna's conviction should be quashed, at the same time ordering that the prosecution's cross-appeal be dismissed. In handing down their decision, one of the panel said, quote, I have a lurking doubt about the safety of the conviction which, in my view, is unsafe and unsatisfactory. A week after her acquittal, Donna was granted $250,000 bail and moved back to Tumbi Umbi. A new trial date was set for January 2018, but as far as the defense was concerned, that wasn't necessarily a certainty. Donna had a legal ace up her sleeve. In November 2017, Donna was granted leave to appeal the order for a retrial. This time, her appeal would be heard by the highest court in the Bahamas and the Commonwealth. The Judicial Committee of the Privy Council is located in London in the United Kingdom. Six months later, while awaiting a court date, Donna applied to the Supreme Court to have her ankle monitor removed. Her request was approved on the condition that she report daily to local police. In late 2018, Phillips Business, Vionic Group, was sold for $500 million AUD. It wasn't until January 2020 that the Privy Council heard Donna's application to overturn the order for a retrial. There were two primary issues to consider. The first was whether Donna had a case to answer in the alleged murder of her husband. If she didn't, and a permanent stay on the case was granted, there would be no further action against Donna. But if her appeal failed, and there was a case for her to answer, the Privy Council would need to determine whether to order a retrial or send the case back to the Bahamas for the Court of Appeal to decide. The defense told the court it agreed with the prosecution about the facts regarding Phillips' tendency to abuse alcohol. The defense provided four reasons to support their claim that there was no case for their client to answer. They argued that for there to be proof that Donna murdered her husband, there would need to be conclusive evidence that Donna was not only at Tumby Umby when Philip died, but that she was the only person present. The court also heard that photographs taken of Philip at the crime scene indicated that his body was still in a state of rigor mortis. In giving evidence, the pathologist explained that rigor mortis usually takes hold around two, four hours after the time of death on average. It peaks at around approximately 12 hours before the body loses rigidity. The defense claimed that these time frames suggested that Philip was murdered at around 9.15 p.m. Based on Donna's testimony, she and Philip were alone for only 45 minutes after their guests had left. By 9.15 p.m., she had already left Tumby Umby and was at Lauren's house, meaning she couldn't have killed her husband. In early March, the Bahamas Tribune reported that the Privy Council rejected all four points of contention put forward by the defense. The Guardian provided details of the judgment relating to the defense's theory that Blue Glass Man was the killer. Quote, There was no evidence of an intruder, 
it was suggested that the blue glass man could have been a guest, but there was no evidence that any guest was due or expected, nor was there any evidence from the CCTV or security of anyone seen entering or leaving the property. It was not accepted that the fact that beer bottles were found in the bin showed that the earlier detritus had been cleared away. Miles, who did not give a DNA sample, could have drunk beer from the blue glass. The male DNA could have been that of Miles or left by a visitor from an earlier occasion. The hypothesis that an unknown male, having arrived after, took a knife from the kitchen and murdered Philip, and before or after the crime, had taken the blue glass from inside, drunk from it, and then added it to the detritus left on the table from the earlier gathering, or if it was already there, picked it up and used it, was so inherently implausible as to be capable of rejection by the jury. Taking the evidence as a whole, the blue glass man as murderer was a hypothesis which a jury could reasonably exclude. In terms of the alleged transfer of Phillips's blood from Alejandro's clothing and then to Donna, the court noted, quote, At no stage did she state that she was wearing the multicolored dress. It could be said that it was most unlikely that Mr. Quintana's hug from the appellant transferred blood at groin level which is where blood was allegedly found on the blue nightdress she said she was wearing that day. In terms of the defense argument that there was insufficient evidence that Philip's blood was on Donna's clothing, the court disagreed, stating, quote, There was evidence upon which it would be reasonably open to the jury to conclude that Philip's blood was on the dresses. The court also took issue with the suggestion that Philip had been murdered later in the evening. By this time, Donna was said to have been at Lauren's house. Quote, Whilst part of the pathologist's evidence could be said to be consistent with the defense's submission, the pathologist also said that after four hours you notice rigor mortis, and in the next 12 hours it peaks. In any event, all the pathologist's timings were approximate. She said that it depended on factors, such as temperature and activity, and that she was only talking about average times. What the relevant factors were likely to be in Mr. Vasili's case was not considered nor was there any exploration of what happens after rigor mortis peaks. In summary, the appellant's case on this issue suffers from the fact that it is based on submission and extrapolation, rather than evidence. There are so many uncertainties about the evidence of timing that a jury could reasonably exclude the hypothesis that Mr. Vasili was killed after 9 to 9, 10 p.m., times that were themselves approximate. The Privy Council rejected the defense's submissions and ruled that Donna did in fact have a case to answer. Back in the Bahamas, the Court of Appeal concurred, ordering in October 2021 that Donna will be facing a retrial. The nine jurors who will decide the fate of accused murderer, Donna Vasili, selected earlier today from a pool at Ansbacher House. The jury selection officially commencing the high-profile trial of the woman who stands accused of murdering her husband, Australian millionaire podiatrist Philip Vasili, at their Old Ford Bay home back on March 24, 2015. Vasili is represented by attorneys Katie Knight, KC, Damien Gomez, KC, and Owen Wells, the matter will be heard before Senior Justice Bernard Turner. On March 10th, 2023, after a unanimous jury decision and nearly eight years of legal battles, Donna Vasili was acquitted of her husband, Dr. Philip Vasili's 2015 murder. Her attorney told Eyewitness News, quote, Emotions were high as everybody was relieved because there was no evidence against her, and everyone was very relieved that this ordeal is over. 
It's been eight years to this point. She is very happy. She was very emotional as she was finally deemed not guilty of this crime she did not commit. Wells added, Her life has been at a total halt. She hasn't been able to visit her family in Australia. Her passport has been taken, and she is just happy this whole thing is over.